Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that as we examine this passage, the scriptures that relate to it, I pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding. Help us to know you better. Lord, most of all, I pray that we would understand how this points us to Christ. Let us never forget, Lord, that all of your scriptures are moving us towards Jesus Christ, our Savior. Help us to see that here today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as we approach God's judgment of the man and the woman here in Genesis 3, I want us to pause for a moment and consider what exactly justice even is. I think many of us, when we think of justice, we think of, of, of what is called retributive or punitive justice. It's that, that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth form of justice. Retribution in proportion to the crime. Punitive, that, that has that, the same root there as the word punishment. So when we certainly see this in Scripture, there is room for this form of justice. Uh, Genesis 9, chapter 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This is capital punishment. Capital punishment is retributive justice. But that's not the only form of justice that we see in Scripture. There is also restorative justice. So if you steal my cow, you must restore what you've done. So you owe me two cows to make it right. A good deal of Old Testament law deals with restorative justice. And we see this even going into the New Testament. Zacchaeus, if you remember the story of the wee little man, uh, when, when he came to Christ, he restored what harm he had done by repaying his victims four times what he had cheated them of. The harm that was caused by his theft was repaired or restored by the penalty charged to the offender. So there is retributive justice in Scripture. There is restorative justice in Scripture. There's also transformative justice in Scripture. The Bible teaches that God's discipline of his children is similar to a parent's discipline of their children. Parents, in disciplining their children, seek to transform them into decent human beings. God in a much more righteous way, seeks to transform his children from one degree of holiness to another. And we see this in Hebrews. Hebrews 12, verses 10 and 11. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained or transformed by it. God, in his perfection, in his wisdom, is just, period. He's just. And he is just in ways far beyond our own understanding. 
And yet there are elements of his justice that we can understand. We can understand why his justice takes these various forms. We understand as humans that there are times when retributive justice is the only right response. So in the case of murder, for instance, there is no way of restoring what has been taken, is there? So there is no restorative justice. We cannot restore a person who has been killed. So retributive justice is the only right justice in that case. And there are times when restorative justice is the only right response. So if you steal my cow, back to my cow, and the judge assigns a purely retributive penalty, a punitive penalty, and he, and he sends the executioner to your home to kill your goat, well, now I'm still without a cow. And now you have limited means of making right what wrong you've done, of restoring the harm. So purely retributive justice would not fit that situation, would it? God is perfectly just, and his determinations flow from his justice. And so when we read Scripture and we, we see God judging, we cannot flatten all of God's judgments and assume that they are all punitive. And I say that because we often do that. I do. I know I've done this. We assume that, when we look, looking at our text this morning, we assume that, well, the serpent has received his punishment, now the woman must be receiving her punishment. And it must be equal in severity to the punishment of the serpent. And, and we, we read that way of thinking into God's justice. And when we do that, we, we, we read our text this way. God has given this woman a cursed and painful childbirth and a forever terrible marriage. And for good measure, all women after her will receive the same punishment just because. I want to tell you this morning at the very beginning, that is not what's happening in our text. And as we study this verse this morning, I want you to see a few things. First of all, God does not curse the woman. Or the man for that matter. He curses the serpent, and he curses the earth. And we'll see that next week. But the man and the woman, even though they will be exiled from his presence, they remain, they continue to live in God's blessing. They received God's blessing in chapter 1. Remember, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. They still have that blessing from God here and that blessing will be passed down through the generations. We'll see that all throughout the book of Genesis, all the way to Christ and the church. But though the woman is not cursed by God, she is disciplined by him. And in God's discipline of the woman, we see his justice. And it is not a retributive, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth type of justice though it is proportionate. What we're going to see is a justice given to the woman, a judgment given to the woman that is meant to transform her 
and restore her. We're going to see God's justice meant to transform the woman and restore the marriage that had been damaged. We see God's transformative justice in the first part of verse 16. We'll see this restorative justice in the second part. So let's, let's break this up into two sections, 16a, 16b, and let's look at the transformative part first. Verse 16a, look at God's judgment of the woman, I will, so we know this is from God, I will, this is God speaking, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Now what's transformative about this? Well, to understand what's happening here, we need to go back to chapters 1 and 2. This is, Genesis is, uh, is cumulative. It's building on things that we learned early on. All of those things about God that we see in chapter 1 continue all throughout the book. We're, we're, we're building on chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 1, God created the man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. There's that blessing. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In chapter 2, we saw the creation of the woman. And she was created as a helper suitable for the man or a helper fit for him. And if you remember, she was God's gift to the man. And by God's design, her, her particular area of, of competence would be this, this fruitful multiplication bit. Something the man clearly needs help with. Right, so since, since this is the woman's particular area of blessing, God responds to her sin accordingly. He brings judgment to this realm of her life. God says, I will surely multiply, and that's the same word we saw in chapter 1, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing or multiplying. Pain is what is multiplied. Now, this word translated pain here is a broadly used word in the Old Testament, and how we understand it depends on context, like everything else. But in general, you could say that this this word pain has the sense of toil or labor mixed with sorrow. So God says this this pain, sorrow, sorrowful pain, toil is going to be multiplied in the multiplying process for the woman. So the woman's primary responsibility, just summarize it here, her primary responsibility that the childbearing portion of be fruitful and multiply and subdue, now that portion has a pain-sorrow element added to it as a result of God's judgment toward her sin. The man, we'll see next week, has the same pain, sorrow, uh, assigned to him or afflicted on, uh, upon him, but that is attached to his work, which is the subdue the earth portion. So, so far, this just sounds like retribution, doesn't it? But before you make that judgment, we, we need to explore this a little bit further. First of all, we need to see that this pain in childbearing that God has afflicted Eve with is more than physical pain. And childbearing is more than just birth. Otherwise, we're, we're tempted to think, well, women could skip out on this, couldn't they, with an epidural? It's, it, but you can't. Right? The pain is not just physical, but it's also emotional. Hence the sorrowful element. 
And the increase in the sorrow and toil involved is applied to the entire process of childbearing. In Hebrew, the, the word for childbearing, or the, the, the word that's translated childbearing here, involves far more than what happens once a, a woman has reached 40 weeks gestation. It, it involves everything from conception all the way through the pregnancy to labor, through birth, all the way to raising the children. It's child rearing all the way through. It's all inclusive of that whole process. God's judgment is to bring toil, painful work to that, and sorrow to that. Some translations even add the word groaning to this entire process. So from the beginning of the childbearing process, there will be toil and sorrow involved. That means conception will now be more difficult. In the same way that we'll see the man having difficulty bringing forth plants from the ground, food to eat from the ground, the woman will have difficulty bringing forth children from her womb. And we see that in the Bible, don't we? Barrenness is the Bible word for it. And you see it all throughout the Old Testament. Sarah, in just a few chapters. Abraham's wife has difficulty, decades of difficulty, conceiving. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, will have troubles conceiving. As will Rachel, Jacob's wife. So will the wife of Zorah, Samson's mom. Hannah will have difficulty conceiving. Elizabeth will suffer the same affliction. All of that is an echo of Genesis 3.16. Though these women have done nothing themselves to, to earn this barrenness or to deserve this barrenness, the fact is they can't bring forth children, and this affliction is a result of Eve's sin and judgment. And here's how this is transformative. Ponder Eve's sin for a moment. Eve was deceived into thinking that God was withholding from her. The serpent told her she could be equal with God if she would eat the forbidden fruit, and so she did. She disobeyed God. And as a result of that sin, the Lord, in his judgment of Eve, is teaching Eve, along with all women after her, that she is and has always been dependent on God for life. The temptation is to be equal with God. The judgment for giving into that temptation is a reminder she is not equal with God, but rather must depend on God for everything. Everything. So going back to those cases of infertility in the Bible, the women were taught to rely on the Lord. To trust in the Lord, and then he blessed them with children. So the transformation of those women goes something like this. The affliction teaches the women, and, and, and usually in all of these cases, the husbands as well. They, they, they learn to trust in the Lord through the trials of, of barrenness and infertility, and then they receive the blessing. They're being taught to trust the Lord. So God's judgment is actually a very gracious reminder, isn't it? It shows God's love 
In God's judgment of Eve, he's teaching her that despite the indwelling sin in her heart, and despite what the sin in her heart would like to think, she's not God. She must depend on God in order to participate in his blessing of fruitful multiplication. This is very, think of this, it's very similar to the thorn in Paul's side, isn't it? Paul received a thorn in his side from, from, from God, and that was meant to teach him to rely on the Lord and not himself. God is teaching Eve the same thing, and all women after Eve, they must rely on the Lord's strength, rely on the Lord's power. It's not accidental that these, these, these women that, that who, who were barren in the Old Testament, through trusting the Lord, brought forth the sons whose descendants would have key roles in God's redemptive story. His reversal of the fall, his defeat of the serpent, all of that is connected. Now, I want to say something to those of you who have personally struggled with infertility. I don't want you to hear me saying here that your infertility is a result of God judging you for some sin that you have done. We never see anything like that with Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or Hannah or Elizabeth in the scriptures. Rather, we're to see that this struggle to conceive is now endemic to what it means to be a woman born into a fallen world. There is now sorrow and pain attached to the the blessing of childbearing. The emotional pain of infertility is very real pain. Not carrying a child to full term, losing your child to miscarriage is real pain. There's real sorrow, even if it doesn't hurt in the same way that the, the, the full-term childbirth physical pain hurts. At least with the pain of childbirth, you have the joy of holding the child afterwards. With the sorrow of infertility or miscarriage, you do not get that same joy. And yet, through your pain, the Lord is teaching you to trust Him, to rely on Him. You are not God. He is. And through your sorrow, God is forming in you the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Trust Him. Trust His sovereign wisdom. Trust His provision for you. And because this, this toil of childbearing is the whole process, that means it goes beyond that conception, doesn't it? The sorrow and toil of childbearing goes into the pregnancy, into the forming of the child. So during that doctor's appointment, when you find out there is an abnormality with your child, will you seek to be equal with God? And take the child's life into your own hands? Will you attempt to escape the coming sorrows of life with that child and abort her because she's deformed? Or because he might have Down syndrome? Or because he has a heart defect that you know for certain will be great difficulty and sadness and and, and cost to you? 
So, so if you think of Eve's judgment as purely punitive and something you can escape through modern science, then you may be tempted in that direction. But if you remember that God's judgment is transformative and that God is transforming you and that He is sanctifying you through this whole childbearing process, then you will know despite that negative prognosis from the doctor, you can carry the child to full term and entrust his life to the Lord and entrust that future toil that you know is coming and that future sorrow that you know is coming. You can entrust that to the Lord as well. Both of those cases, infertility, abnormality, and pregnancy bring very real emotional pain, yet it's not pointless. It's transformative. The trials that God brings are always purposeful. Pain and sorrow are meant to have the effect of of reorienting our souls, our sinful souls, back to God, back to reliance on God. Trials are reminders that God is God. We are not. God doesn't endure trials. We do. We are to rely on God in the midst of our trials. This also goes to that physical pain of pregnancy, what we plainly read in the text. There is physical pain involved in pregnancy and childbirth. From morning sickness to sleepless nights to heartburn to the pain of birth, all of that is a reminder from the Lord, woman, you are not God. You are mortal. You must trust in the Lord and rely on the Lord to sustain you in this. And through that pain comes the continued participation in God's blessing. The, the, the discipline of the Lord that we're seeing here, it's not, it's not hateful, it's not arbitrary, and it's not a curse. Rather, God's discipline is purposeful, and God's purpose in His discipline is to remind Eve and every woman after her that God is Lord. He is to be trusted. Sisters, as those of you, all of you, who with me have inherited Adam's sin, you and I need these reminders from God. The sin nature in us tells us we are the center of the universe. But God is reminding us through transformative discipline You are not the center. God is. God is provider. God is sustainer. God is the source of life and blessing and righteousness and justice and holiness and peace. So seek the Lord. Seek the Lord all the way through, from conception, through pregnancy, through childbirth, and even raising those children, all the way through to adulthood, because there is certainly pain and sorrow in that part as well. Ask Eve herself. We'll see this Chapter 4, the mother of Cain and Abel certainly felt sorrow in raising her children. And yet, despite the ravages that sin wrought on on her children, Eve was learning to trust in the Lord. And you see that at the very end of chapter 4, when the Lord gives her another child. She says, the Lord has provided. What was the Lord teaching her? Trust in me. I am your provider. God's first judgment is transformative. 
Eve was transformed through this. Women, you are being transformed from one degree of holiness to another. Trust in the Lord. The second act of judgment from God is restorative. We find this in the second part of verse 16. God restores the order that was broken in the fall. Remember again what happened in chapter uh, 3. The beast of the field deceived the woman who gave to the man who disobeyed God. There was a reversal of God's good order. God's creation order is very clear in chapters 1 and 2. God is head of the man, the man is head of the woman, the man and woman as rulers over the beast, all of them submitting to, to God together. The serpent, though, a beast, remember, flipped that upside down, and so in his judgment to all three creatures, God is restoring his order. He first cursed the at-fault beast by putting him not just below humanity, but below all other creatures. We saw that last week. And there was that promise, remember, that there would be final retribution. There would be an offspring from the woman who would one day crush the serpent. This is punitive, retributive justice for the serpent. It is restorative for humanity and the rest of creation. God was, bringing, uh, was beginning to restore, to order the disorder that the serpent had brought. Well, God continues to show here in our text this morning that he is restoring his good creation order. And we see that with his judgment of the woman here in verse 16. Look at the second half. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, I can guess that most of you, some of you, hear that and you see it. This, something negative is going on here. In fact, I used to see this as a negative judgment. And I know that I've taught before that that's the case, that, 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 that God is telling Eve that there will be difficulties in marriage as a result of sin. She will desire her husband's position as head, and he will sinfully domineer over her. I don't think that's actually what's happening. And I was wrong to teach it that way previously. And I certainly don't believe that God is, through his judgment, introducing strife into the marriage. Rather, what is happening here is God is fixing what went wrong. God is restoring the marriage order that the serpent and sin have divided. Where the woman had been drawn away and led astray from God and her, husband, uh, and her, and her husband's God-given authority, now God is restoring her back to her husband. By God's grace, by God's grace... Despite the sin that has entered the marriage, Eve's desire will be for her husband, towards her husband. In fact, if you, if you look at the, the Septuagint translation, so the old Greek translation of this passage that was translated around 200 BC, the scribes, the Jewish scribes who translated from the Hebrew text to the Greek text, they translated it this way. They said that uh, there was a sense in which the woman is turning back to her husband. And they translated, you shall return to your husband and he shall be Lord over you. This is, the, this is the way that the early church understood this passage. The sin-disordered relationship is being restored to order by God. Sin will certainly have a negative effect on the marriage. 
There's no avoiding this. Adam and Eve will continue to be sinners. They will continue to hurt one another. But there are other patches, uh, passages in Scripture that we look to in order to see the negative effects of sin. So James 4, for instance, James 4.1 tells us that it is the sin in us that causes us to fight. We don't need to see that coming in from Genesis 3.16. Genesis 3.16 isn't a passage meant to teach us the negative effects of sin in marriage. Rather, it is to be seen as the positive response of God to sin's disorder. And if we're willing to see this as restoration, as restorative justice, then we won't be so troubled by that second clause there. In the second part, the husband who had failed to lead his wife, God says he shall now rule over her. And it's that word rule over, I think, where we really get tripped up, isn't it? It's because of this rule over idea that we think something must be wrong. Surely this is punitive punishment from God or, or just the result of sin. That's a hard word for us, rule over. We don't like the idea of being ruled over. Nobody does. But we should not read this as negative. That same word that is translated as rule over there, it's the same word used to describe the blessing of Joseph's rule over Egypt. Think of, of the, the, the blessing that, that Joseph was to God's people through his rule over Egypt. Of course, ruling can be evil. Ruling over can be very negative. The same word is also used, used to describe how hostile nations rule over Israel. It all depends, doesn't it? Rule over. Whether it's good or bad, what does it depend on? On the ruler. Is he a righteous ruler or an unrighteous ruler? 2 Samuel 23, verse 3 through 4. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. There's also unrighteous rule, though. Proverbs 28, 15, and 16. Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. A ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor. It's not the ruling itself that has moral value, is it? It's the ruler. Here, here in Genesis 3.16, God is not saying whether or not the man will rule his family in righteousness. He's simply stating that he shall rule. The woman listened to the serpent. The man listened to his wife. He failed to protect his wife. He failed to lead his wife. He allowed her to lead him even when she was in the state of being deceived. And so God is correcting that. In fact, look at verse 17. We'll look at this one next week, but... Look at God's judgment towards the man. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, and then we see God's judgment of him. Do you see what, what God's doing here? He's correcting Adam for giving in to the upside-down order that the serpent has introduced. 
God is correcting the error that the man and woman fell into. Adam did not protect his wife. He did not lead his wife. Instead, he let his wife get caught up in the serpent's temptation. Adam failed to lead. And so God is restoring to order what has fallen apart. And as a result of God's restoration, the woman will return to her husband. She will return to desiring her husband. And the husband will return to the place as head of marriage, head of the marriage, that role that he had forsaken in his passivity. God is restoring the marriage. Do you see that? So that the marriage can now be fruitful again and bringing forth children. This is God's plan. If the woman continues on in her trajectory away from the man, where she started uh, when she began to follow the serpent, she continues on that trajectory. They can't be fruitful and multiply. Thus, it is restorative for God to pronounce that the woman will again desire her husband. If the man, on the other hand, continues on his trajectory of passivity and neglect, his wife will neither respect him nor desire him. Thus, it is restorative. It is restoration for God to pronounce that he shall again rule in his household. In creation, God set things in order. In sin, that order was disrupted. In judgment, that order is being restored. And it is this restored order in marriage that is maintained throughout Scripture. This is the ideal that, God's hold, that God holds out for us as the way that our families ought to be ordered. We see this continuation of God's design for marriage in our scripture reading. We saw that when Mark read it to us from 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll put it on the screen. You can also flip over to 1 Peter 3 if you want. I'm going to show you here the connection to Genesis. 1 Peter 3, 1. Likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, that word subject to, it's the same instruction that Christians are given who are living under the emperor, just the chapter before. We are to be subject to the ruler, to the emperor. Wives are to be subject to their husbands. 1 Peter 3, 5 and 6 goes on, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, this is an interesting one, she called him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. But be subject to your husbands, be like Sarah who called Abraham Lord. Lord means what? Ruler, master. You see the connection? God restored the husband to his place as head of the marriage, and God continues to teach us this by his good design all the way through into the new covenant. Peter is celebrating, he's celebrating Sarah's righteousness and her obedience to God, her hope in God. And he's teaching that all women whose hope is in the Lord should do as Sarah did and desire their husbands, see their husbands as, as Lord. Why? Because husbands are so great. No. No. Because it shows the greatness and the faithfulness of God. 
just as women are to hope in God through the trials of conception and pregnancy and childbirth and raising kids, they are to hope in God in marriage as well. And that's the point of all of this. Our merciful, our merciful God in his, in his great plan of redemption restored the relationship between Adam and Eve so that his great plan would continue. Though there will be sin and death in the world now, though there will be pain and sorrow in the world now, God's redemptive plan is in motion. And it will be rolled out through marriage and childbirth. Through Mary's pains in childbirth will come the Christ. And Christ will take on our sin and he will take on our death, and he will take on our, our pain and our sorrow. He will, he will endure pain and sorrow that is even greater than any one man or woman has ever experienced. And in him, in Christ, we will see the fuller meaning of what that first childbirth was all about. And in Christ, we will see the fuller meaning of what the restoration of marriage was meant for. Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ rules over his bride, the church. And that is not a bad thing. That is not a negative thing at all. In fact, there is nothing better. Nothing. Friends, if you have not yet received Christ, you need to know this this morning. There is nothing more freeing. There is nothing more liberating. There is nothing more fulfilling than subjecting yourself, your entire life, to Christ. As the one who rules over us. Christ is the righteous ruler that Genesis 3.16 is pointing forward to. Christ is the righteous ruler that 2 Samuel is pointing forward to. He is the righteous ruler who dawns on us like the morning light, like the sun shining forth, like the rain which brings life. Christ loves and rules over you and me so perfectly that it is also good that we should desire him. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. That's desire. That's the, the desire that we are to have as, as Christ's bride, His church, for the bridegroom, Christ Himself. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Our true restoration is found in Christ alone. Where, where Adam and Eve departed from God's rightful rule over them, in Christ, true humanity is reconciled back to God. Our relationship with God is restored in Christ. He's our treasure. He's our Savior. He is our ruler because He has given Himself to us for our good for his glory. 